0: section 48 of the letters of mark twain complete this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by james k white the letters of mark twain complete by mark twain volume six chapter forty six letters nineteen o seven to nineteen o eight, a degree from oxford the new home at reading the author j howard moore sent a copy of his book the universal kinship with a letter in which he said most humorists have no anxiety except to glorify themselves and add substance to their pocket-books by making their readers laugh you have shown on many occasions that your mission is not simply to antidote the melancholy of a world but includes a real and intelligent concern for the general welfare of your fellow-man the universal kinship was the kind of a book that mark twain appreciated as his acknowledgment clearly shows to mr j howard moore February two seven dear mr moore The book has furnished me several days of deep pleasure and satisfaction. It has compelled my gratitude at the same time, since it saves me the labor of stating my own long-cherished opinions and reflections and resentments by doing it lucidly and fervently and irascibly for me. There is one thing that always puzzles me, as inheritors of the mentality of our reptile ancestors we have improved the inheritance by a thousand grades but in the matter of the morals which they left us we have gone backward as many grades that evolution is strange and to me unaccountable and unnatural necessarily we started equipped with their perfect and blemishless morals now we are wholly destitute we have no real morals but only artificial ones morals created and preserved by the forced suppression of natural and hellish instincts yet we are dull enough to be vain of them certainly we are a sufficiently comical invention we humans sincerely yours s l clemens Mark Twain's own books were always being excommunicated by some librarian, and the matter never failed to invite the attention and amusement of the press and the indignation of many correspondents. Usually the books were Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, the morals of which were not regarded as wholly exemplary. But in 1907 a small library, in a very small town, attained a day's national notoriety by putting the ban on Eve's diary—not so much on account of its text as for the chaste and exquisite illustrations by Lester Ralph. When the reporters came in a troop to learn about it, the author said, "'I believe this time the trouble is mainly with the pictures. I did not draw them. I wish I had. They are so beautiful.' Just at this time, Dr. William Lyon Phelps, of Yale, was giving a literary talk to the Teachers' Club of Hartford, dwelling on the superlative value of Mark Twain's writings for readers old and young. Mrs. F. G. Whitmore, an old Hartford friend, wrote Clemens of the things that Phelps had said, as consolation for Eve's latest banishment. This gave him a chance to add something to what he had said to the reporters to mrs whitmore in hartford February 7 1907 dear mrs whitmore but the truth is that when a library expels a book of mine and leaves an unexpurgated bible lying around where unprotected youth and age can get hold of it the deep unconscious irony of it delights me and doesn't anger me but even if it angered me such words as those of professor phelps would take the sting all out nobody attaches weight to the freaks of the charlton library but when a man like phelps speaks the world gives attention some day i hope to meet him and thank him for his courage for saying those things out in public custom is to think a handsome thing in private but tame it down in the utterance i hope you are all well and happy and there too i add my love sincerely yours s l clemens in may 1907 mark twain was invited to england to receive from oxford the degree of literary doctor it was an honor that came to him as a sort of laurel crown at the end of a great career and gratified him exceedingly. To Moberly Bell of the London Times, he expressed his appreciation. Bell had been over in April, and Clemens believed him concerned in the matter. To Moberly Bell in London, Twenty-one Fifth Avenue, May Three Ought Seven, dear Mister Bell, your hand is in it, and you have my best thanks although I wouldn't cross an ocean again for the price of the ship that carried me, I am glad to do it for an Oxford degree. I shall plan to sail for England a shade before the middle of June so that I can have a few days in London before the twenty sixth. Sincerely, S. L. Clemens. He had taken a house at Tuxedo for the summer desiring to be near New York City, and in the next letter he writes mr rogers concerning his london plans we discover also in this letter that he has begun work on the reading home and the cost is to come entirely out of the autobiographical chapters then running in the north american review it may be of passing interest to note here that he had the usual house builders fortune he received thirty thousand dollars for the chapters the house cost him nearly double that amount to h h rogers in new york tuxedo park may twenty nine art seven dear admiral why hang it i'm not going to see you and mrs rogers at all in england it is a great disappointment i leave there a month from now june twenty nine No, I shall see you, for by your itinerary you are most likely to come to London June 21st or along there, so that is very good and satisfactory. I have declined all engagements but two, Whitelaw-Reed, dinner, June 21, and the Pilgrims-Lunch, June 25. The Oxford ceremony is June 26th. I have paid my return passage in the many-something, but it is just possible that I may want to stay in England a week or two longer. I can't tell yet. I do very much want to meet up with the boys for the last time. I have signed the contract for the building of the house on my Connecticut farm and specified the cost limit, and work has been begun. THE COST HAS TO ALL COME OUT OF A YEAR'S INSTALLMENTS OF AUTOBIOGRAPHY IN THE N.A. REVIEW. CLARA IS WINNING HER WAY TO SUCCESS AND DISTINCTION WITH SURE AND STEADY STRIDES. BY ALL ACCOUNTS, SHE IS SINGING LIKE A BIRD, AND IS NOT AFRAID ON THE CONCERT STAGE any more. TUXEDA IS A CHARMING PLACE. I THINK IT HASN'T ITS EQUAL ANYWHERE very best wishes to you both slc the story of mark twain's extraordinary reception and triumph in england has been told footnote mark twain a biography chapters 256 to 259 end of footnote it was in fact the crowning glory of his career Perhaps one of the most satisfactory incidents of his sojourn was a dinner given to him by the staff of Punch, in the historic offices at 10 Bouverie Street, where no other foreign visitor had been thus honoured. A notable distinction. When the dinner ended, Little Joy Agnew, daughter of the chief editor, entered and presented to the chief guest the original drawing of a cartoon by Bernard Partridge, which had appeared on the front page of Punch. In this picture, the presiding genius of the paper is offering to Mark Twain health, long life, and happiness from the punch-bowl. A short time after his return to America, he received a pretty childish letter from little Miss Agnew, acknowledging a photograph he had sent her, and giving a list of her pets and occupations. Such a letter always delighted Mark Twain, and his pleasure in this one is reflected in his reply to miss joy agner in london tuxedo park new york unto you greetings and salutation and worship you dear sweet little rightly named joy i can see you now almost as vividly as i saw you that night when you sat flashing and beaming upon those somber swallow-tails Fair as a star when only one is shining in the sky. Oh, you were indeed the only one. There wasn't even the remotest chance of competition with you, dear. Ah, you are a decoration, you little witch. The idea of your house going to the wants and expense of a flower garden. Aren't you enough? And what do you want to go and discourage the other flowers for? Is that the right spirit? Is it considerate? Is it kind? How do you suppose they feel when you come around looking the way you look, and you so pink and sweet and dainty and lovely and supernatural? Why it makes them feel embarrassed and artificial? Of course, and in my opinion, it is just as pathetic as it can be now. then you want to reform, dear and do right well certainly you are well off joy three bantams three goldfish three doves six canaries two dogs one cat all you need now to be permanently beyond the reach of want is one more dog just one more good gentle high principled affectionate loyal dog Who wouldn't want any nobler service than the golden privilege of lying at your door nights and biting everything that came along and i am that very one and ready to come at the dropping of a hat do you think you could convey my love and thanks to your daddy and owen seaman and those other oppressed and downtrodden subjects of yours your darling small tyrant on my knees these with the kiss of fealty from yo other subject mark twain eleanor glenn author of three weeks and other erotic tales was in america that winter and asked permission to call on mark twain an appointment was made and clemens discussed with her for an hour or more those crucial phases of life which have made living a complex problem since the days of eve in eden Mrs. Glynn had never before heard anything like Mark Twain's wonderful talk, and she was anxious to print her interview. She wrote what she could remember of it, and sent it to him for approval. If his conversation had been frank, his refusal was hardly less so. To Mrs. Eleanor Glynn in New York, January 22, 8. Dear Mrs. Glynn, it reads pretty poorly. I get the sense of it, but it is a poor literary job. However, it would have to be that because nobody can be reported, even approximately, except by a stenographer. Approximations, synopsized speeches, translated poems, artificial flowers, and chromos all have a sort of value, but it is small if you had to put upon paper what i really said it would have wrecked your type machine i said some fetid over-vigorous things but that was because it was a confidential conversation i said nothing for print my own report of the same conversation reads like satan roasting a sunday school it and certain other readable chapters of my autobiography will not be published until all the Clemens family are dead, dead and correspondingly indifferent. They were written to entertain me, not the rest of the world. I am not here to do good, at least not to do it intentionally. You must pardon me for dictating this letter. I am sick of bed and not feeling as well as I might. Sincerely yours, S. L. Clemens among the cultured men of england mark twain had no greater admirer or warmer friend than andrew lang they were at one on most literary subjects and especially so in their admiration of the life and character of joan of arc both had written of her and both held her to be something almost more than mortal when therefore anatoly france published his exhaustive biography of the maid of doremie a book in which he followed with exaggerated minuteness and innumerable footnotes every step of joan's physical career at the expense of her spiritual life which he was inclined to cheapen lang wrote feelingly and with some contempt of the performance inviting the author of the personal recollections to come to the rescue of their heroine compare every one of his statements with the passages he cites from authorities "'and make him the laughter of the world,' he wrote. "'If you are lazy about comparing, "'I can make you a complete set of what the authorities say, "'and of what this amazing novelist says that they say. "'When I tell you that he thinks the epiphany, "'January sixth, 12th night, is December 25th, Christmas Day, "'you begin to see what an egregious ass he is. "'Treat him like Dowden and oblige a reference to Mark Twain's defense of Harriet Shelley in which he had heaped ridicule on Dowden's life of the poet, a masterly performance, one of the best that ever came from Mark Twain's pen. Lang's suggestion would seem to have been a welcome one. To Andrew Lang in London, New York, April 25, 1908 Dear Mr. Lang. I haven't seen the book nor any review of it, but only not very understandable references to it, of a sort which discomforted me, but of course set my interest on fire. I don't want to have to read it in French. I should lose the nice shades, and should do a lot of gross misinterpreting, too. But there'll be a translation soon, next-var. I will wait for it. I note with joy that you say, If you are lazy about comparing, which I most certainly am, I can make you a complete set of what the authorities say, and of what this amazing novelist says that they say. Ah, do it for me. Then I will attempt the article, and, if I succeed in doing it to my satisfaction, will publish it. It is long since I touched a pen three and a half years, and I was intending to continue this happy holiday to the gallows. But there are things that could beguile me to break this blessed Sabbath. Yours very sincerely SL Clemens. Certainly it is an interesting fact that an Englishman, one of the race that burned Joan, should feel moved to defend her memory against the top-heavy perversions of a distinguished French author. But Lang seems never to have sent the notes. The copying would have been a tremendous task, and perhaps he never found the time for it. We may regret today that he did not, for Mark Twain's article on the French author's Joan would have been at least unique. Samuel Clemens could never accustom himself to the loss of his wife. From the time of her death, marriage, which had brought him his greatest joy in life, presented itself to him always with the thought of bereavement, waiting somewhere just behind. The news of an approaching wedding saddened him, and there was nearly always a sombre tinge in his congratulations, of which the following, to a dear friend, is an example. TO FATHER FITZSIMON IN WASHINGTON june 5 art 8 dear father fitzsimon marriage yes it is the supreme felicity of life i concede it and it is also the supreme tragedy of life the deeper the love the sure the tragedy and the more disconsolating when it comes and so i congratulate you not perfunctorily not lukewarmly, but with a fervency and fire that no word in the dictionary is strong enough to convey, and in the same breath and with the same depth and sincerity, I grieve for you. Not for both of you, and not for the one that shall go first, but for the one that is fated to be left behind. For that one there is no recompense. For that one no recompense is possible." there are times thousands of times when i can expose the half of my mind and conceal the other half but in the matter of the tragedy of marriage i feel too deeply for that and i have to bleed it all out or shut it all in and so you must consider what i have been through and am passing through and be charitable with me make the most of the sunshine and i hope it will last long ever so long i do not really want to be present yet for friendship's sake and because i honor you so i would be there if i could most sincerely your friend s l clemens the new home at Reading was completed in the spring of 1908 and on the 18th of june when it was entirely fitted and furnished mark twain entered it for the first time he had never even seen the place nor carefully examined plans which john howells had made for his house he preferred the surprise of it and the general avoidance of detail that he was satisfied with the result will be seen in his letters he named it at first innocence at home later changing this title to stormfield the letter which follows is an acknowledgment of an interesting souvenir from the battlefield of tewkesbury fourteen seventy one and some relics of the cavalier and roundhead regiments encamped at tewkesbury in sixteen forty three to an english admirer Innocence at home redding connecticut august fifteenth or eight dear sir I highly prize the pipes, and shall intimate to people that Raleigh smoked them, and doubtless he did. After a little practice I shall be able to go further and say he did. They will then be the most interesting features of my library's decorations. The horseshoe is attracting a good deal of attention, because I have intimated that the conqueror's horse cast it it will attract more when i get my hand in and say he cast it i thank you for the pipes and the shoe and also for the official guide which i read through at a single sitting if a person should say that about a book of mine i should regard it as good evidence of the book's interest very truly yours s l clemens in his philosophy what is man and now and again in his other writings we find mark twain giving small credit to the human mind as an originator of ideas the most original writer of his time he took no credit for pure invention and allowed none to others the mind he declared adapted consciously or unconsciously it did not create in a letter which follows he elucidates this doctrine. The reference in it to the captain and to the kerosene, as the reader may remember, have to do with Captain Hurricane Jones and his theory of the miracles of Isaac and of the prophets of Baal, as expounded in some rambling notes of an idle excursion. By a trick of memory, Clemens gives the little duke as his suggestion for the prince and the pauper, he should have written the Prince* and the page by the same author to rev f y christ in new york redden connecticut august art eight dear sir you say i often owe my best sermons to a suggestion received in reading or from other exterior sources your remark is not quite in accordance with the facts We must change it to, I owe all my thoughts, sermons, and ideas to suggestions received from sources outside of myself. The simplified English of this proposition is, no man's brains ever originated an idea. It is an astonishing thing that after all these ages, the world goes on thinking the human brain machinery can originate a thought. It can't it never has done it in all cases little and big the thought is born of a suggestion and in all cases the suggestions come to the brain from the outside the brain never acts except from exterior impulse a man can satisfy himself of the truth of this by a single process let him examine every idea that occurs to him in an hour a day, in a week, in a lifetime if it please. He will always find that an outside something suggested the thought, something which he saw with his eyes or heard with his ears or perceived by his touch, not necessarily today nor yesterday nor last year nor twenty years ago, but sometime or other. Usually the source of the suggestion is immediately traceable, but sometimes it isn't however if you will examine every thought that occurs to you for the next two days you will find that in at least nine cases out of ten you can put your finger on the outside suggestion and that ought to convince you that number ten had that source too although you cannot at present hunt it down and find it the idea of writing to me would have had to wait a long time if it waited until your brain originated it it was born of an outside suggestion sir thomas and my old captain the hypnotist thinks he has invented a new thing suggestion this is very sad i don't know where my captain got his kerosene idea it was forty-one years ago and he is long ago dead but I know that it didn't originate in his head, but it was born from a suggestion from the outside. Yesterday, a guest said, "'How did you come to think of writing The Prince and the Pauper?' "'I didn't.' The thought came to me from the outside, suggested by that pleasant and picturesque little history book, Charlotte M. Young's Little Duke. I doubt if Mrs. Burnett knows whence came to her the suggestion to write Little Lord Fauntleroy, but I know. It came to her from reading The Prince and the Pauper. In all my life I have never originated an idea, and neither has she nor anybody else. Man's mind is a clever machine, and can work up materials into ingenious fancies and ideas but it can't create the material. None but the gods can do that. In Sweden I saw a vast machine receive a block of wood and turn it into marketable matches in two minutes. It could do everything but make the wood. That is the kind of machine the human mind is. Maybe this is not a large compliment, but it is all I can afford. Your friend, and well-wisher, S. L. Clemens To Mrs. H. H. Rogers, in Fairhaven, Massachusetts, Redden, Connecticut, August twelfth, nineteen 1908. Dear Mrs. Rogers, I believe I am the wellest man on the planet today, and good for a trip to Fairhaven, which I discussed with the captain of the new Bedford boat, who pleasantly accosted me in the Grand Central, August 5 but the doctor came up from new york day before yesterday and gave positive orders that i must not stir from here before frost it is because i was threatened with a swoon ten or twelve days ago and went to new york a day or two later to attend my nephew's funeral and got horribly exhausted by the heat and came back here and had a bilious collapse in twenty four hours i was as sound as a nut again but nobody believes it but me this is a prodigiously satisfactory place and i am so glad i don't have to go back to the turmoil and rush of new york the house stands high and the horizons are wide yet the seclusion is perfect the nearest public road is half a mile away so there is nobody to look in and i don't have to wear clothes if i don't want to I have been downstairs in nightgown and slippers a couple of hours, and have been photographed in that costume. But I will dress now and behave myself. That doctor had half an idea that there is something the matter with my brain. Doctors do know so little, and they do charge so much for it. I wish Henry Rogers would come here, and I wish you would come with him you can't rest in that crowded place but you could rest here for sure i would learn bridge and entertain you and rob you With love to you both ever yours s l c in the foregoing letter we get the first intimation of mark twain's failing health the nephew who had died was samuel e Moffat, son of pamela clemens Moffat, who was a distinguished journalist and editorial writer on collier's weekly a man beloved by all who knew him had been drowned in the surf off the jersey beach to w d howells kittery point maine august twelfth 8. dear howells won't you and mrs howells and mildred come and give us as many days as you can spare and examine john's triumph It is the most satisfactory house I am acquainted with, and the most satisfactorily situated. But it is no place to work in, because one is outside of it all the time, while the sun and the moon are on duty. Outside of it, in the loggia, where the breezes blow, and the tall arches divide up the scenery and frame it. It's a ghastly long distance to come, and I wouldn't travel such a distance to see anything short of a memorial museum. But if you can't come now, you can at least come later, when you return to New York, for the journey will be only an hour and a half per express train. Things are gradually and steadily taking shape inside the house, and nature is taking care of the outside in her ingenious and wonderful fashion and she is competent, and asks no help, and gets none. I have retired from New York for good. I have retired from labor for good. I have dismissed my stenographer, and have entered upon a holiday whose other end is in the cemetery. Yours ever, Mark From a gentleman in Buffalo, clemens one day received a letter enclosing an incompleted list of the world's one hundred greatest men men who had exerted the largest visible influence on the life and activities of the race the writer asked that mark twain examine the list and suggest names adding would you include jesus as the founder of christianity in the list to the list of statesmen clemens added the name of thomas Paine. To the list of inventors, Edison and Alexander Graham Bell The question he answered in detail To Blink Buffalo, New York Private Redden, Connecticut, august twenty eighth, R eight Dear Sir By private, I mean don't print any remarks of mine. I like your list. THE LARGEST VISIBLE INFLUENCE. THESE TERMS REQUIRE YOU TO ADD JESUS, AND THEY doubly AND TREBLY REQUIRE YOU TO ADD SATAN. FROM A.D. 350 TO A.D. 1850, THESE GENTLEMEN EXERCISED A VASTER INFLUENCE OVER A FIFTH PART OF THE HUMAN RACE THAN WAS EXERCISED OVER THAT FRACTION OF THE RACE BY ALL OTHER INFLUENCES COMBINED. 99 hundredths of this influence proceeded from Satan, the remaining fraction of it from Jesus. During those 1,500 years, the fear of Satan and hell made 99 Christians where love of God and heaven landed one. During those 1,500 years, Satan's influence was worth very nearly a hundred times as much to the business as was the influence of all the rest of the Holy Family put together you have asked me a question and i have answered it seriously and sincerely you have put in buddha a god with a following at one time greater than jesus ever had a god with perhaps a little better evidence of his godship than that which is offered for jesus's how then in fairness can you leave jesus out and if you put him in How can you logically leave Satan out? Thunder is good. Thunder is impressive. But it is the lightning that does the work. Very truly yours, S. L. Clemens. The children's theater of the next letter was an institution of the New York East Side in which Mark Twain was deeply interested. The children were most, if not all, of Hebrew parentage, and the performances they gave under the direction of Alice M. Hertz were really remarkable. It seemed a pity that lack of funds should have brought this excellent educational venture to an untimely end. The following letter was in reply to one enclosing a newspaper clipping reporting a performance of The Prince and the Pauper given by Chicago schoolchildren to Mrs. Hookway in Chicago september 1908 dear mrs hookway although i am full of the spirit of work this morning a rarity with me lately i must steal a moment or two for a word in person for i have been reading the eloquent account in the record herald and am pleasurably stirred to my deepest deeps the reading brings vividly back to me my pet and pride the children's theater of the east side new york and it supports and reaffirms what i have so often and strenuously said in public that a children's theater is easily the most valuable adjunct that any educational institution for the young can have and that no otherwise good school is complete without it IT IS MUCH THE MOST EFFECTIVE TEACHER OF MORALS AND PROMOTER OF GOOD CONDUCT THAT THE INGENUITY OF MAN HAS YET DEVISED, FOR THE REASON THAT ITS LESSONS ARE NOT TAUGHT wearily BY BOOK AND BY DREARY HOMILY, BUT BY VISIBLE AND ENTHUSING ACTION, AND THEY GO STRAIGHT TO THE HEART, WHICH IS THE RIGHTEST OF RIGHT PLACES FOR THEM. BOOK MORALS OFTEN GET NO FURTHER THAN THE INTELLECT if they even get that far on their spectral and shadowy pilgrimage but when they travel from a children's theater they do not stop permanently at that halfway house but go on home the children's theater is the only teacher of morals and conduct and high ideals that never bores the pupil but always leaves him sorry when the lesson is over and as for history no other teacher is for a moment comparable to it no other can make the dead heroes of the world rise up and shake the dust of the ages from their bones and live and move and breathe and speak and be real to the looker and listener no other can make the study of the lives and times of the illustrious dead a delight a splendid interest a passion and no other can paint a history lesson in colors that will stay and stay and never fade. It is my conviction that the children's theatre is one of the very, very great inventions of the twentieth century, and that its vast education of value, now but dimly perceived and but vaguely understood, will presently come to be recognized. By the article which I have been reading, I find the same things happening in the Howland School that we have become familiar with in our children's theatre, of which I am president and sufficiently vain of the distinction. These things, among others, 1. The Educating History Study does not stop with the little players, but the whole school catches the infection and revels in it. 2. And it doesn't even stop there. The children carry it home and infect the family with it, even the parents and grandparents. And the whole household fall to studying history and bygone manners and customs and costumes with eager interest. And this interest is carried along to the studying of costumes in old book plates, and beyond that to the selecting of fabrics and the making of clothes. Hundreds of our children learn the plays by listening without book and by making notes. Then the listener goes home and plays the piece, all the parts, to the family. And the family are glad and proud, glad to listen to the explanations and analyses, glad to learn, glad to be lifted to planes above their dreary worker day lives. Our children's theater is educating 7,000 children and their families. When we put on a play of Shakespeare, they fall to studying it diligently, so that they may be qualified to enjoy it to the limit when the piece is staged. 3. Your Highland school children do the construction work, stage decorations, etc. That is our way too our young folks do everything that is needed by the theatre with their own hands scene designing scene painting gas fitting electric work costume designing costume making everything and all things indeed and their orchestra and its leader are from their own ranks the article which i have been reading says speaking of the historical play produced by the pupils of the howland school the question naturally arises what has this drama done for those who so enthusiastically took part the touching star has made a year out of the past live for the children as could no chronology or bald statement of historical events it has cultivated the fancy and given to the imagination strength and purity work and composition has ceased to be drudgery for when all other themes fall flat a subject dealing with some aspect of the drama presented never fails to arouse interest in a rapid pushing of pens over paper that is entirely true the interest is not confined to the drama's story it spreads out all around the period of the story and gives to all the outline and unrelated happenings of that period a fascinating interest an interest which does not fade out with the years but remains always fresh always inspiring always welcome history facts dug by the job with sweat and tears out of a dry and spiritless text-book but never mind all who have suffered know what that is i remain dear madam sincerely yours s l clemens Mark Twain had a special fondness for cats. As a boy he always owned one, and it generally had a seat beside him at the table. There were cats at Quarry Farm and at Hartford, and in the house at Reading there was a grey mother-cat named Tammany, of which he was especially fond. Kittens capering about were his chief delight. In a letter to a Chicago woman he tells how those of Tammany assisted at his favourite game to mrs mabel larkin patterson in chicago redden connecticut october 2 odd 8 dear mrs patterson the contents of your letter are very pleasant and very welcome and i thank you for them sincerely if i can find a photograph of my tammany and her kittens i will enclose it in this one of them likes to be crammed into a corner pocket of the billiard table which he fits as snugly as does a finger in a glove and then he watches the game and obstructs it by the hour and spoils many a shot by putting out his paw and changing the direction of a passing ball whenever a ball is in his arms or so close to him that it cannot be played upon without risk or hurting him the player is privileged to remove it to any one of the three spots that chances to be vacant Ah no. My lection days are over for good and all. Sincerely yours, S. L. Clemens. The letter to Howells, which follows, was written a short time before the passage of the copyright extension bill, which rendered Mark Twain's new plan, here mentioned, unneeded, at least for the time. To W. D. Howells in New York, Monday, October twenty sixth, 8. Oh! i say where are you hiding and why are you hiding you promised to come here and you didn't keep your word this sounds like astonishment but don't be misled by that come fire up again on your fiction mill and give us another good promise and this time keep it for it is your turn to be astonished come and stay as long as you possibly can I invented a new copyright extension scheme last Friday and sat up all night arranging its details. It will interest you. Yesterday I got it down on paper in as compact a form as I could. Harvey and I have examined the scheme and tomorrow or next day he will send me a couple of copyright experts to arrange about getting certain statistics for me authors publishers and the public have always been damaged by the copyright laws the proposed amendment will advantage all three the public most of all i think congress will pass it and settle the vexed question permanently i shall need your assent and the assent of about a dozen other authors also the assent of all the large firms of the three hundred publishers These authors and publishers will furnish said assent, I am sure. Not even the pirates will be able to furnish a serious objection, I think. Come along. This place seemed at its best when all around was summer green. Later it seemed at its best when all around was burning with the autumn splendors. And now, once more, it seems at its best with the trees naked and the ground a painter's palette. Yours ever, Mark. Clemens was a great admirer of the sea stories of W. W. Jacobs, and generally kept one or more of this author's volumes in reach of his bed, where most of his reading was done. The acknowledgment that follows was sent when he had finished Salt Haven. To W. W. Jacobs in England, Redden, Connecticut, October twenty-eighth, o eight Dear Mr. Jacobs, it has a delightful look. I will not venture to say how delightful, because the words would sound extravagant, and would thereby lose some of their strength, and to that degree misrepresent me. It is my conviction that Dialstone Lane holds the supremacy over all purely humorous books in our language, but I feel about Salthaven as the Cape Cod poet feels about Simon Hinks the lord knows all things great and small with doubt he's not perplexed tis him alone that knows it all but simon hanks comes next the poet was moved by envy and malice and jealousy but i'm not i place salthaven close up next to dialstone because i think it has a fair and honest right to that high position i have kept the other book moving i shall begin to hand this one around now and many thanks to you for remembering me this house is out in the solitudes of the woods and the hills an hour and a half from new york and i mean to stay in it winter and summer the rest of my days i beg you to come and help occupy it a few days the next time you visit the u s sincerely yours S. L. Clemens One of the attractions of Stormfield was a beautiful mantle in the billiard-room, presented by the Hawaiian Promotion Committee. It had not arrived when the rest of the house was completed, but came in time to be set in place early in the morning of the owner's seventy-third birthday. It was made of a variety of Hawaiian woods, and was the work of a native carver, F. M. Otremba, Clemens was deeply touched by the offering from those Western Isles, the memory of which was always so sweet to him. To Mr. Wood in Hawaii, November 30, Art 8. Dear Mr. Wood, the beautiful mantle was put in its place an hour ago, and its friendly aloha was the first uttered greeting my seventy-third birthday received. It is rich in color, rich in quality and rich in decoration therefore it exactly harmonizes with the taste for such things which was born in me and which i have seldom been able to indulge to my content it will be a great pleasure to me daily renewed to have under my eye this lovely reminder of the loveliest fleet of islands that lies anchored in any ocean and i beg to thank the committee for providing me that pleasure Sincerely yours, S. L. Clemens. End of section forty eight. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.